Thank you, Darden. Um, Darden and, and Justin Howell are our uh, two acolytes this morning, so thank you both for praying and reading the scripture. Darden, you did an excellent job with those uh, different types of people. I would have stumbled over my, uh, I would have stumbled over my words on the second one. So, um, excellent job, both of you there. Thank you so much for your your help. Um, before I, I do get started today, I do want to remind everyone that we will be uh, uh, having Holy Communion um, after the sermon today. Um, in the United Methodist Church, we do believe in an open table, so it doesn't matter if you have been in a church since the first day you were born, or this is the first time you've ever stepped foot in a church. If you're a member of Pittman Park, or if you're not, the communion table is open to all. And uh, Bob Townsend, later on, um, I'll call him up, and he will lead us in the liturgy. So uh, before that happens, Bob, thank you so much. Um, for also helping out as well. Um, so today, if you heard me, uh, if you were actually listening during the children's uh, sermon, we celebrate one of the most important holidays on the church calendar, and that is Pentecost. And yet, unlike Easter and Christmas, it's not a holiday where people send cards or exchange gifts. I mean, you know, we make the sanctuary like red in honor of the tongues of fire that descended on the disciples that day. Uh, We've sung a few songs about the Holy Spirit. But since summer vacations have started, uh, churches are a little less full than usual. Um, Pentecost always strikes me as the the holy day that everyone forgot. Um, it, it, sometimes it seems like a liturgical add-on at times. Um, but maybe its placement on the calendar isn't Pentecost's biggest obstacle to holiday prominence. Um, I want to suggest that one of the reasons we have a hard time with Pentecost really has more to do with the nature of what we're celebrating, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the early church. So after a season where we've celebrated the birth of Jesus during Advent and Christmas and the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus during Lent and Easter, the tangible story of Jesus, God in human flesh, we struggle a bit with this ethereal idea of God, the Holy Spirit, or or Holy Ghost, as some traditions uh, say. I mean, we're good with the story of Jesus, but we're not sure what to do with this mysterious movement of the Spirit. Um, I want to suggest, however, that a good understanding of the work of the Spirit isn't just an add-on to our understanding of the biblical story. Uh, Indeed, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is active all the way through since the beginning of creation. Luke brings that understanding uh, to to light in his story, connecting Christmas and Good Friday, Easter, the ascension of Jesus and Pentecost all together as this comprehensive view of what the Trinity's work has been and continues to be all about. So Luke, you might remember, wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. Um, And each one of them is addressed to this person named Theophilus, which loosely translates to friend of God. So the gospel of Luke was written to tell the story of Jesus and Acts was written as the sequel to that story. The story of the church that Jesus launches and empowers through the spirit. So if we read Luke Acts as one continuous narrative, we begin to see that Pentecost is anything but an add on holiday. You know, one of the signatures of Luke as a writer is that he's very into birth 
stories. Both Luke and Acts begin with the Holy Spirit being involved in a birth. You you guys remember the Christmas story, right? Where the angel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy and he shall be called Son of God. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 35. And then in Acts, Jesus tells the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 8. So the birth of Jesus and the birth of the church church are both made uh, to happen by this Holy Spirit coming upon ordinary people, empowering them to do extraordinary things. Uh, What I find most interesting about the Pentecost story, though, is not that it's only the story of birth, but of rebirth. Not only does the Spirit come upon these ordinary people, the Spirit also comes upon those who are broken and outright failures. Now, when I was reading this familiar story again this week, I could not help but notice that one of the great examples of what happens when the Spirit comes upon a person is Simon Peter. You may recall that Simon was a fisherman when Jesus first called him. And Luke tells us a story of how Jesus commissions one of Simon's boats to use as, as a, a speaker rostrum while teaching there on the shore of Galilee. And when Jesus finished, he told Simon to head back out onto the lake to go fishing, which seemed crazy to Simon at the time because he had just spent the whole day fishing and didn't catch a thing. And what's he do? He says, if you say so, and they go out and they let their nets down and they haul in a record catch. And Simon's response to this miraculous catch is pretty interesting. He says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He's not only ordinary, he's an admitted sinner. And Jesus chooses him anyways. Not only in spite of that fact, but I think because of that fact. Unlike Matthew, Luke doesn't tell us why Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, which means rock. Matthew tells us that it's because Peter was the rock upon which Jesus would build, uh, later build uh, his church. But Luke demonstrates to us that Peter was anything but solid like a rock. Uh, nowhere in this, uh, is this more evident than um, at the table on the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And there at the table, Jesus tells Peter that the disciples' faith is in danger. And Peter is their leader and he's going to be vulnerable. And Peter will have none of that kind of talk from Jesus. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Pretty bold words spoken out of impulse. But sadly, Jesus responds, I tell you, Peter, the cock will crow this day until you have denied me three times. And that's, what's ha- that's what happens, of course. Peter the rock, the leader, the spokesman, the first real appointed pastor by Jesus fails miserably. The Jesus he claimed he would follow to death was the same Jesus he vehemently denied even knowing just a few hours later. And those denials of Jesus are the last words that Peter speaks in the gospel of Luke. The words, I tell you, I don't know him, are the last we see of Peter in the book of Luke. And when the book of Acts picks up in the story, 
Peter speaks for the disciples when they're casting lots to determine who's going to replace the traitor Judas. And Luke leaves this irony open for us to wrestle with here. Peter, the denier, presides over the replacement of Judas, the betrayer. Judas gets the rap, but Peter's just as guilty. In, In short, this really isn't the kind of guy that you'd pick to lead a movement, is it? A guy full of of bluster who wants to please, but who doesn't want to deal with adversity. He's impulsive. He's a hypocrite, perhaps even violent. He puts on a front of toughness and bravado, but underneath he is scared, timid, and weak. I just described Peter, but how many of us are going, holy cow, Jared, you just hit me on the nail. But then on the day of Pentecost, There is Peter standing in front of a scoffing crowd and speaking boldly about the very Jesus he had earlier denied to some of the very people of whom he had been afraid just a few short weeks ago. How do we explain that? And Luke tells us very clearly, it was the Holy Spirit. You know, maybe one of the reasons we're so ambivalent about Pentecost is the fact that we've become so conditioned to do things on our own and under our own power. And nowhere is this more evident than in the way Christians tend to do church in the 21st century. Somehow, we've gotten the idea that the measure of a church is its size, the beauty of its building, the myriad programs that it offers, the charismatic nature of its pastors or staff people. You know, I, I, uh, I, I watched a webinar not too long ago that talked about, um, uh, uh, it was talking about like the vision of the future of your church. Just an open webinar for, for people to watch, um, which really boiled down to that, that idea of a, a vision for the future of your church really boils down to uh, an evaluation of the effectiveness of pastors and churches based on the metrics of worship, attendance, financial giving, small groups, etc. If the numbers are good, then the pastor is effective and the church is successful. Successful pastors grow large churches and become the celebrities of the church world. Now, please don't get me wrong. Numbers are not unimportant. Luke was clearly counting heads and tells us that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the church numbers that day. That's a pretty good membership Sunday, if you're asking me. Yeah, yeah, I wish. Problem is, however, that the growth that took place on Pentecost wasn't the result of the disciples' marketing strategy, attractive buildings, or programs to meet every community need, or or their awesome website. Their primary preacher wasn't much to look at. He had no charismatic personality, no training in the preparation and conduct of sermons. In fact, he would have been considered a failure by most people. Remember, the crowd initially thought that these people were drunk, I mean, so much for reputation and respectability, right? I mean, if you were looking for the perfect people, the perfect setting, and the perfect leader upon which to model a church, this story is not it. Peter was no celebrity, not the kind of guy you'd pick to lead a successful church. 
Here's a guy who in and of himself isn't much to look at or even listen to. He's not the kind of guy who's going to rise to the top based on his own charisma, competence, or competence. You know, interestingly, I, I read an article recently that said if you want your child to become a CEO of a major corporation, you know what you ought to name him? Peter. A survey by the, businesses, the business network site LinkedIn revealed that Peter is the most prevalent name of CEOs. Therefore, they imply that Peter is the name geared towards success. The irony here, though, is that the Apostle Peter is a success not because of his name or his efforts or even his character. The only way Peter is successful in his preaching in the early church is successful in their witness is because of the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. And I think this is why Jesus chose him in the first place. He needs help. And the Bible tells us over and over again that God only ever chooses those who need help, those who are weak, those who are broken, those who are clueless to do his great work. I mean, let's think about it. Abraham, he was a nomadic senior citizen. Jacob was a cheat. Moses stuttered and on top of that, murdered an Egyptian. Samson was a drunk, a bully, and a brawler. David was an adulterer who ordered the death of his most most faithful soldier to cover up his sin. Solomon was addicted to the love of foreign women, a thousand of them. Elijah hid out in a cave because he was afraid of an evil queen. Jeremiah kept whining to God because he wanted to quit being a prophet. And Jonah ran away from God. And then when he actually got his way, you know what he did? He pouted. And yet these people I just read are the heroes of the Bible stories. Not because they're strong, but precisely because they are weak. See, it's only when we realize that we're weak, inadequate, and clueless that God, through the Spirit, chooses to work through us. I, I, I've been uh, reading Eugene Peterson's uh, memoir uh, over these past couple weeks. Um, Eugene Peterson is the, the author of the Message Translation of the Bible, as well as uh, numerous other books. And he writes about the church that he was planning in Maryland and about the discussion he had when, when forming this church. He says it would have been a lot easier to imagine a church formed from an elite group of talented men and women who hungered for the beauty of holiness. But then where would we be? We wouldn't have had a chance of being part of it. The story had its way with us. It became more clear that when God forms a church, he starts with the nobodies. That's where the Holy Spirit works. These are the people he started with to bring our Savior into the world. Why would he change strategies in bringing the salvation community, church, this congregation into formation? You know, the Apostle Paul, who was himself a hyper-religious hitman before encountering the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, wrote about God's proclivity to choose a bunch of nobodies with nothing to offer 
on their own. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, it says, For we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. Who has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? But we have this treasure in clay jars so that it might be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. Did you catch that? Clay jars. We have this extraordinary treasure in clay jars. I don't know if y'all know this about clay jars. They break very easily. But the treasure inside the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus still remains. God chooses to invest his mission and his message in clay jar people like, like Peter, like Paul, like you and me. God doesn't measure our success by our outward accomplishments, only by our faithfulness and willingness to be led by the Spirit. And given that realization... Prayer is always precedes performance. Prayer always precedes performance. You know, the early church was formed on that day of Pentecost, not by the strength of a charismatic leader, but by a charismatic movement of God's spirit. And that's why the church whose birth we celebrate today is still around 2,000 years later. It's all about the spirit. This is an especially important message for Pittman Park United Methodist Church on this Pentecost. You know, just last year, we celebrated our 60th anniversary. I've only been a part of this family for five years. But to hear the stories of people trusting the Spirit to go start a new church is always so amazing to me. I love to hear it when someone says, you know, I'm a charter member. I was here 60 years ago when it happened. Or, or to have a child in our children's program, who we know that their grandparents or maybe even their great-grandparents were charter members. Um, I was speaking with Elizabeth Deal not too long ago, and she, she grew up in Pittman Park, um, and um, she told me that when she was in middle school, she invited Haley Bond now, Haley Kelly, and Lauren Deal at the time, she's now Lauren Rogers, she invited them to youth group, to MYF when they were in middle school. And they came, and now they have kids, they have families, their kids come to church. So out of one invite, two people came, and it's now affected, you know, past 10 people. I mean, we could sit here and count them. I don't know them exactly off the top of my head. But good things have been happening here at Pittman Park. With that being said, we also need to understand this. This church has never been and will never be primarily about its individual pastors or individual people of the congregation. The longer a church's history, the less people will remember about the people in the past. When this church reaches its 160th anniversary those sitting in, in the pews here or the chairs over in the 1105 Contemporary Service 
the people at that time sitting in the pews or the chairs will have virtually no memory of any of us, which isn't a bad thing. I don't, I don't want you guys to think that, that I'm trying to get to something bad here. Yet the church will still continue to work. And it's because since Pentecost, the church has been and always will be not about our efforts, but the work of the spirit in us, a work that will continue long after we're gone. And the stories that they will remember are the stories of people who had the spirit working in them. When we try to make the church successful based on our own efforts, we wind up creating a church that might attract and impress people for a time, but it doesn't transform people deeply. We can create a church that looks great on the stat sheets, but is spiritually bankrupt. We expect hard work and excellence from our leaders, and rightly so, but leaders will eventually burn out if they don't pay primary attention to the fact that the work of the church is the same work of the Spirit. We won't lay people to be active and volunteer and give, and rightly so, but what is needed first is a willingness to listen to the Spirit. The birth of the church was the work of the Spirit, and the church's continued life and maturity is the Spirit's work as well. A church that isn't driven by the Spirit will eventually be no church at all. Without the Spirit, we're nobodies. So as Paul says, we must never proclaim ourselves because at base we are like Peter and all the rest. We're broken and in need of redemption. Instead, we must always proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Like Peter, it's the Spirit that gives us the ability to do that in ways that really matter. The truth is that we are fragile containers for the work of the Spirit. We have learned, we've learned that the hard way at times. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. How do we maintain our dependence on the Holy Spirit? Jesus told his disciples, including Peter, to wait and to pray. I think that's pretty good advice for us today as we consider the church's past and its future. Waiting on the Lord in prayer is our number one job as a church. I, I, have, a, I have a buddy who actually teaches in South Korea. He was in the Philippines for a few years and actually just this he's finishing up, just finished up his second year in South Korea. And uh, we stay in contact via Facebook. Um, and he's telling me about these massive churches that he has visited. Uh, the Yoido Full Gospel Church, for example, has 750,000 members. You think we got a parking problem? Quang Lim Methodist Church, the largest Methodist church in the world, has 50,000 members plus. And he said that as he was seeing these massive churches, he just kept asking himself, how did this happen? And he said, if you ask the people there in the churches, they will not hesitate to tell you it's prayer. They pray constantly, he said, individually, corporately, on retreats. 
People at the Kwanglim Church pray all night before a worship service, asking the Holy Spirit to come upon the pastor and people um, with power. The ushers pray before services. People are praying in the background during the worship service. At Yoido Church, the, the prayer time sounds a lot like Pentecost. The, the pastor never does a formal prayer. He just yells out, Jesus, three times, and then everyone starts praying out loud, either in, individually or possibly in, in some small groups. They pray, and God has done some amazing things with these very ordinary people. I wonder what would happen if our American churches, if we gave up all of our activity for a while, and instead we waited and we prayed for the Spirit to come upon us in power. My guess is that we begin to redefine success according to the Spirit's terms. And when we take the time to wait and listen to the Spirit, we're reminded that we are people of grace. We're reminded that brokenness can be overcome by the forgiveness and love of God. We can celebrate what the Spirit has been up to in us already and look ahead to where the Spirit will lead us in the future. Pentecost is not an add-on holy day. It's a humbling reminder that this church, the United Methodist Church, and indeed churches everywhere, are the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that gives us vision, the Spirit that gives us strength, the Spirit that convicts, convinces, and converts us to follow in the way of Christ. It's the Spirit that gives us new birth, and births in a vision for a new way of life made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the Spirit that works in our baptism to wash us clean of our sin and make us whole again. It's the Spirit that picks us up when we fall and puts all our broken pieces back together again. It's the Spirit that gives us a vision of our future as citizens of the kingdom of God. That's something to celebrate. Bob, as you come up here to, uh, to prepare um, the communion table, I want to I close with this. Our youth group here at Pittman Park is called Realign. And our theme verses are Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And Romans chapter 12, verse 2, says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can test and prove what God's will is, his good pleasing, and perfect will. And I always come back to that whenever I think about the future and what the Holy Spirit has in store for me or the youth group or even us as Pittman Park United Methodist Church. Because at times, it is so scary to know, to not know what the Holy Spirit has in store for us. But Paul tells us in Romans to test and prove what God's will is. That as we pray, and we wait to hear from the Spirit. And if we hear something, Paul says, test and prove it. If you think it's the will of God, if you think it's the will of the Holy Spirit, to test and prove it. Because I guarantee you, it will end up being good and pleasing and perfect.